Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. The Slash Film Editor-in-Chief, Peter Soretta, and joining me on his podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Twy Tranbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. You sound so down, Chris. No, I'm 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 great. Everything, Fine. Everything's I'm, great. Everything, everything's yeah. I've I've never been happier in my life. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, I'll say this: I I woke up uh, on the weekend. Like I woke up at eight thirty in the morning because I heard honks and I heard cheers, and that literally woke me up. And I like sat up in my bed without before I even picked up my phone. I was like, he won, didn't he? Like, like I knew it just from here, like that, that noise that woke me up. Uh, so that was happy. And I, I live in uh, West Hollywood. So um, there was people on the streets celebrating, which uh, good and bad. It was exciting to see people happy and see people all like joined together and uh, bad because I, I, I want people to stay six feet apart, even though they're wearing masks and they weren't quite say, staying six feet apart. But uh but yeah, um, so I, I'm going to celebrate this week, guys. I know I know some of you are, I don't know, a little bit uh, on the edge of, you know, that you know, the Republican Party is not willing to concede, even though we have millions more votes. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think this is a good thing. I... I, I don't think there's any way that they, they can stop this from happening. So I don't know. Maybe I am naive in that respect, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm after that week, that hellish week of election week of like being on the edge of watching the TV every day and being like, why, how is this still continuing? Like what is going on here? Um, I, I, I am trying to be positive about things. 
So. Uh, Peter, I want to point out that we have an iTunes review that gives us one star. The entirety, the entirety of the review reads liberal crap. Uh, so we're, all we're no. doing is feeding into the one star review with, with this. Oh, I don't. Of, no. <laughs> 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 I, I I don't care about that guy. I know. I'm 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 so. messing with you. Yeah. Um, okay. What have we been doing this week? Uh, I I received my life size baby yoda from sideshow collectibles this is a statue that was originally i think 350 dollars. i think it's gone up in price if you didn't pre-order uh but i pre-ordered it uh i remember i was at disneyland at 80s night in february in a line to meet ewoks and this thing went on sale and i remember being on my phone trying to order it and the sideshow website kept on crashing and no, no you know nobody could get through to buy this life-size baby yoda statue at the time but it's just such a different time. We're at a theme park. We're in a crowded room next to many people. And now we are where we are. Anyways, um, I received this in the mail. We did an unboxing for Ordinary Adventures, uh, which you can watch. I'll link that in the show notes. But it, it is incredible. The the work that Sideshow has done on this piece. I, I, every year at Comic-Con, I go to their booth and I admire all the like pieces at their booth. And like, I think the paint job on this might be the best paint job I've ever seen up close for any sideshow collectible product. And in the box, they actually said that this is the most, uh, I think the word they use most popular. I, I take it to mean that this is the thing that was purchased the most that they've ever made in the history of the company. But I, I could be wrong there. Um, and he even has like hairs. He has like little old man hairs coming out of his head. Uh, he's so cute. I, I think my only complaint with uh, the life-size Baby Yoda from Sideshow Collectibles is that it is a statue, so you can't, like, rearrange him or make him do a different pose. His head can tilt left to right, and you, his hand, you can put the knob uh, of of the uh, from the Razor Crest in his hand. It's, like, magnetically connects, which is kind of cool. Um, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to have this. So if you, if you're interested in this, uh, check out the video. I will say this, the, the paint job on his face, it looks like he has like a little bit more pink than what I imagined baby Yoda have in his, in his face. But then I, I've been watching Mandalorian and the more I pay attention to like the digital or puppet on set of Mandalorian, he does have that pink. It's just weird that, like, when you see the statue for something like, he looks a little bit more pink than he normally does. But uh, apparently, they worked with Legacy to create this from from the original assets and stuff like that. So um, I'm not sure if these are still on sale on the SciShow website, but I'll I'll link the video. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, I got to interview Anthony Daniels today for uh, the upcoming Lego Star Wars holiday special uh, that'll be coming out next week. Both of the special and the interview. The special comes out on November 17th and the interview we're going to publish sometime around there. Um, so, yeah, it was just cool to get to talk to the guy who has the only person who's been in all of the Star Wars movies, um, not always as C-3PO, but predominantly as C-3PO and who has done pretty much like everything whenever you see C-3PO. Uh, he couldn't have been nicer and like it, it would be so easy for someone like him to, you know, kind of just be tired of this after all these decades of being asked endlessly about playing C-3PO. But he couldn't have been more jovial and kind. Um, and so it was just really cool to talk to them. So uh, keep an eye out for that uh, coming next week. 
Okay. Uh, did you learn any new stories, or is he like just telling the same stories he always tells? It wasn't really t- telling the same same stories necessarily, but it's just you know we we talked a little bit about the original Star Wars holiday special, which yeah, uh, like pretty much everybody involved in it acknowledges that it's a mistake. Um, you know, and and he even you know admitted that it made made him a little leery about somebody even considering trying to do another Star Wars holiday special. Um, but yeah, like you'll you'll be able to see what we talked about uh, next week for sure. Okay, uh, moving on. Jacob, what have you been doing? I sometimes make the mistake of assuming that everybody who listens to this podcast regularly reads SlashFilm.com. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but we're always we're always running really great stuff, either you know, reviews, articles, news from the core staff here on this podcast, but also lots of really interesting stuff from people who contribute to the site in various ways. And one of our longtime contributors, uh, Josh Spiegel, uh, sent in what I've been called what I call on Twitter the Avengers Endgame of his work on SlashFilm.com. About a year ago, he sent me an email saying, uh, 2020 is the uh, 80-year anniversary of both Fantasia and Pinocchio. Would you want a list, a ranking of the top 80 shots in Disney animation history? Not moments, not scenes, but shots. I said, Josh, if you want to to undergo this, go for it. And Josh is a Disney scholar. He's written books about Disney and Pixar. He takes this stuff seriously. And like I said, about a year later, like last week or so, he emails me and says, oh, here it is. Um, he's like it's finally done <laughs> uh and it's about thirty thousand words and i said and, and he has gifts for every single shot uh so people can actually see the shots and i said okay how do i go about publishing this so we agreed to split it into uh eight chapters running across eight days each one counting down 10 shots all the way up to the number one and it is one of the most fun challenging and epic like literally epic <laughs> Um, uh, things we've run slash them since I've been an editor here and it's going on about four years now and not to say it's the best thing we've done because we have a lot of amazing stuff but uh, it's by far one of the most fun things like it's one of the cases where I'm, I'm working on it adding the gifts working on formatting and I'm reading it and I, I caught up in the article and realized oh crap I've been reading this for fun look at the gifts for fun when I decided to go back and rework <laughs> a couple entries but yeah this is uh, entry two ran today and entry three tomorrow and we're going to like I said there's eight of them and it's super good. It's, uh, it's if you if you enjoy Disney stuff, if you, uh, this is such a treat. And like I said, every entry has a GIF. So if you, if you don't know what the shot he's talking about in the text, it's literally right there. It's all there. Uh, so you can we'll put that a link to the show notes uh, that has that's collecting all the various entries in that. But by all means, please read this because this was a lot of work from both the writer and the editor. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can find. How many pieces have been published so far? Uh, the second one went up this morning. Okay, so we'll put the links to the verse two in the show notes. HT, what have you been up to? Have you found a roommate? I have. Well, I talked about how I finally found one uh, of maybe about a month ago, and she moved in this weekend. And I wanted to follow up on your um, story about how great a Saturday it was because it was a great Saturday, especially in New York. I was actually walking around my neighborhood um, coming from a farmer's market, which is very like New York millennial thing to say. Um, and were you also eating avocado toast while you're doing that? No, I was just <laughs> drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but was it did they have cold foam is, is that no, the thing it was that the a latte. Oh, okay 
Um, but yes, uh, it, and I was out sitting in a park with my friends when the news hit and all of these people started banging on their pots from their the apartment complex I was nearby and shouting and yelling out Biden won out of the windows. And we were walking back to um, my friend's apartment and people were just cheering in the streets. We would burst into spontaneous cheers with like random strangers in the streets and just start like yelling and cheering um, and he's yelling like, I don't know how <laughs> if we curse on this podcast. I don't know remember if we do. Yeah, you can. Anyways, we're yelling "fuck Trump" the entire time, <laughs> and um, all these poor little kids oh. are walking by, looking very scared. Oh. And it was just so fun. Just like that was such a a, a moment. I felt like uh, was really special and exciting, and I was happy to be a part of that. Uh, the follow up to that has not been you know as fun, but I just want to remember and capture that moment. Um, just walking outside and and experiencing all of that New York love uh, yeah. with people. And uh, that same, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it kind of felt like the re- the end of Return of the Jedi, where everybody was like in the streets, like celebrating, which yeah. I didn't think was like something people would actually do, but they were doing. Yeah. So. <laughs> I like better that it was just like spontaneous too, because it wasn't something planned. People were just, you know, so excited and so overwhelmed and so rapturous that they decided to just go in the streets and, and celebrate. So that was really fun. HG, um, is there anything more in New York than everybody bonding over hating the same thing. Yes. Yeah. No, it's definitely a very New York feeling. That and protecting Spider-Man. I also love that they're banging on the pots and pans. That's something that didn't happen here in West Hollywood. We just heard screams and cheers and (laughs) uh, people beeping, you know, their cars and stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't able, unfortunately, to uh, participate in the afternoon celebrations that were like there were bigger parades and everything in Times Square because my roommate moved in uh, that same day, literally like half an hour after the news broke. And we're like, ah, we had to. And so I spent the afternoon moving things up and not getting to celebrate. But being able to do that when it first broke was really exciting. So I have I now have a roommate. I have a fully furnished apartment. I am sore from moving things up three flights of stairs and um, a memory of a happy Saturday. I, I, I got to follow up. Do, do you sit in your, like that, that chair that you got and like, what do you do in the chair? I do sit in it. I, I've created a little <laughs> reading nook for myself actually. So I have my chair with a pillow that my friend got me, which was actually a Game of Thrones pillow. It's a pillow of the House of Lannister uh, in that chair and a Jeff Goldblum blanket that my friend got me as well. So it's like a a little reading nook with like all these pop culture things. And so I do sit in it. It's not just for show. It is also for show, but it's very comfy too. Does the chair have a name? I I don't know. Do Do people name chairs? I don't know. People name their cars. So I thought maybe, I don't know. I guess it doesn't need a name, does it? No, it's it's my chair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? I started reading The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. This is his newest book. came out this year. Uh, Eric Larson is uh, best known for writing The Devil in the White City, the uh, book that Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio have been trying to adapt for years now. And that book is exceptional. Uh, but so are the rest of his other books that I've read. He's written all kinds of nonfiction books, you know, uh, covering all kinds of subjects, but World War II is one he's covered a few times, and Splendid in the Vile uh, is about the first year of Churchill's uh, of Churchill's Prime Minister of the UK, and it's important to remember that he became Prime Minister right as Germany was literally invading France. Uh, the Dunkirk evacuation happened two weeks after he took office, so his, his first year was uh, intense, to say the least, and Splendid in the Vile is not a like uh, overarching, massive look at World War II. 
it is specifically what was going on uh, in, in Churchill, Churchill's family, and his cabinet during the first year of 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 England's involvement in World War II, more or less, and uh, the London Blitz, and things going incredibly wrong, and things looking incredibly bleak until suddenly they don't. And I'm not far enough into it to you know say I'm I'm, I'm you know so it's it's a big book, it's a heavy book. It doesn't even look that thick until you look at until you open it and realize oh the the print here is actually fairly small <laughs> compared to the average uh book of this size so i'm taking my time with it i'm enjoying it a lot and it's full of such bizarre characters churchill himself it's been written you know a lot in the past about what a strange man he was what an abrasive man he was but uh he's such an and i'm we'll see if the book deals with some of his more unsavory aspects i mean once you learn about how he caused famine in india and didn't care about it it's hard to like embrace him wholeheartedly as a great leader but he's definitely a fascinating man uh and the cabinet surrounding him is as interesting as him there's so many weirdos a bunch of pretty much splendid <laughs> in the vile is about all the fucking weirdos who protected england during during the blitz and kept uh nazis from getting on the beaches and taking the nation uh and it is extremely entertaining extremely gossipy and full of really great harrowing historical details uh that is the splendid in the vile by eric larson i highly recommend it so far Okay. HD, what have you been reading? I've been reading The Art of Wolf Walkers, which is the behind the scenes art book for the new the new animated movie from Cartoon Saloon, uh, which is the Irish animation studio behind movies like The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. And um, this is a really, really gorgeous uh, art book. It's probably one of the most detailed and beautiful uh, animation behind the scenes books that I've read, uh, mostly because it's the uh, Cartoon Saloon's work is something that is just incredible and highly intricate and detailed. And um, it shows, it, it has all a collection of all of the storyboards as well as concept art. And one of the things about Cartoon Saloon is that their style is very much inspired by sort of Gaelic and um, Gaelic art. And um, that is something that they seek to bring to life in hand-drawn and some sort of CG-aided fashion. So seeing the concept art and the storyboards that they do, it's very much similar to what we see on screen with wolf walkers and it's it's just really really gorgeous like every piece of every frame of painting almost it's just it's um i highly recommend uh checking this out it's uh written by charles solomon who is a an animation historic historian and critic and um it's an absolutely just gorgeous uh piece of um like art book about this really great new movie that I will talk about soon, but um, <laughs> it recently became available for to purchase uh, November 10th, so yesterday. So that is available now, and that's The Art of Wolf Walkers, and uh, it's absolutely uh, fantastic and features some really interesting information, trivia, and again, just gorgeous art all around. I used to be addicted to these like art of books, especially like the Pixar series, which I think is from maybe inside editions or something, but like they're so beautiful and it's so interesting to see how things develop. I, I guess I still am into them because I, I, I get the art of books for like the star Wars movies, mm -hmm. uh, but they're just like, just such wonderful coffee table books to have. Um, it's just like, I don't know, just so much like work goes into the development of these films that like you never, I mean, I guess it all adds up. Every little piece adds up to like something that ends up being in the film, but it's it's amazing to see it all as a whole. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Uh, speaking of Pixar, let's let's move into what we've been watching. Uh, both Ben and I got a chance to see the new Pixar film, Soul. This is the first feature film from Pixar to not get a theatrical release in the United States. It is coming to Disney Plus uh, subscribers. You don't have to pay anything extra if you're a subscriber to Disney Plus. Uh, I think on Christmas. Is that correct, Ben? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, This is the story of Joe. He is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. Uh, His true passion is jazz and he's a good jazz player. Uh, But he's found himself kind of stuck teaching music inside instead of playing. And he's gotten the offer to become a full time teacher, which might mean the, you know, (laughs) <laughs> the nail in the coffin of uh, the thing that he wanted to be and the person he wanted to be. Uh, the the plot synopsis, I'm going to tell you what the, the official plot synopsis says here. It's just one sentence uh, because I don't think I could sum it up <laughs> in any way and not spoil anything. Uh, but when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what is meant to have what it is, what it means to have a soul. Okay. Unquote. Um, this movie, I think for me is one of the best films I've seen this year. It's almost like sad that this film won't get a theatrical release because I, I wish this could be a film that we could gather in a theater to see. Um, it's funny at moments. It it might even be profound. It, It feels, it feels like it's made more for adults, even though I think kids will love it just as well. And I, I think that's when I love Pixar, that's when Pixar is at its best, when it's a film that I feel like reaches that level of, um, you know, just it, 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 it connects with both kids and adults. Uh, I, I don't know. There's so, so much to love about this, this movie, the, the this jazz percussion score from, uh, Jonathan Baptiste. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm going to say that. Uh, mixed with the score from Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, like this, the whole plot, like the, the idea behind this is very like, uh, like the inciting incident is very like, uh, much like, uh, Jason Reitman's short, uh, in God we trust, or maybe shades of a happy place. It's a, I don't know. It really feels like one of the biggest swings Pixar has taken in a really long time. And it, you, you got to admire it. Uh, there's these characters in it that are 2D, almost postmodern, abstract characters. It's, it's so weird. It's interesting. It's funny. It'll make you cry. Uh, it's a, it's in, in a way, it's a good companion piece to Cars 3. I know that's like a weird thing to say, but uh, I, I think it is. I think the people at Pixar are reaching that age where they're looking back and what they wanted to be, what they are, you know, that kind of thing. Ben, what did you think of Soul? I liked it. I thought it was a solid Pixar movie. I don't think it's, you know, instantly vaulted into like my top five just because the the playing field is so, um, you know, the, the their track record has been so impressive thus far. Uh, that's not necessarily like a dig at this movie. It's just like a praise for the movies that they've made before. So um, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I think that, you know, the movie addresses like the clash between creativity and pragmatism. And then it also to me was sort of about how, like the idea of um, how shifting your perspective can sometimes lead to profound realizations and, and sort of 
acknowledgements of, of your place in life and, and, you know, what you are meant to do and all that kind of stuff. It, it deals with these really, really big ideas, big concepts. Um, and I thought it, it did it pretty well. I mean, I think Inside Out is like the closest uh, um, comparison point uh, in terms of other Pixar movies that you can do because of the way that it sort of like physicalizes abstract concepts, you know, into like characters and, and locations and things like that. Um, I, I think personally, I liked Inside Out a little bit more, but I think that um, especially, you know, in, in a year where we're like desperate for just like good, good movies to watch at home, that this definitely is going to scratch that itch for a lot of people. So um, I'm, I'll be curious to see sort of like where it ends up on everyone's, um, you know, like collective Pixar ranking, like sort of what the, the consensus is about where it falls in that list. Um, but uh, you know, before we get to that, it's it's just a good movie. So uh, I'm glad that people will be able to watch it when it comes out on Christmas. Yeah, I I don't know. I, what do you think? Like, it's the best Pixar movie since what? Like, I was gonna say Inside Out, which came out in 2015. So that's I guess only five years. I guess they've come out with a lot of movies in five years. But they in that five years is also Coco, which I think yeah. is a contender as well. I think I might like this more than Coco. I don't know. Coco has grown on me. I, Coco, I didn't immediately love. I saw it the second time. Like I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, and the second time I loved it. So I don't know. I feel like I'm gonna have to see this again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing with a lot of these Pixar movies. You kind of like have to give them, um, you know. And that's like the, that's what is so great about the Toy Story movies too. Is like rewatching them at different points in your life. You you know you hone in on different things. And I think uh, like you're talking about Peter, like Soul being you know maybe. Uh, leaned a little bit more toward the adult audience, I think is going to um, serve the movie really well in the long run because kids who see it, you know, are going to be laughing at like some of the slapstick stuff here, you know, now when they're watching it for the first time. And then like years later, they'll come back to it and realize that there's this whole other plane that it's operating on. So um, yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this movie for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's the first Pixar film with a black uh, protagonist, which is the topic of one of the episodes of Inside Pixar, which I saw. This is the new series coming to Disney Plus uh, on November 13th, so this Friday. Uh, I'm not sure what the release schedule is for this, but I've seen the first two episodes. And these two these, these episodes are like 10 minutes long, so they're very short. They're not like uh, Into the Unknown, or like, you know, that series, or, you know, uh, the uh, Imagineering story. They're not like these in-depth... Uh, documentary series these are more like bits and pieces uh they provide a inside look at the people artistry and culture of pixar and on on one hand it isn't like an on the wall doc following the production of a pixar film it's not you know what into the unknown was um but on the other hand this is each episode is presented as kind of like a profile of a single person in the organization of Pixar and uh, like the problems and like they're kind of their story. The first episode is Kemp powers, who is the black uh, co-writer co-director of soul. Uh, he was having problems making the main character of soul feel authentically black. And in this episode is kind of like the, the struggle and what they came to, how to address that, which mostly involves them adding this barbershop scene, which kind of gives you uh, a feeling of uh, the black community. Um, the second episode follows Deanna Marsgalese, I think is 
pronounce her name. She's an animator, costume designer, and a development artist, a visual development artist who has like this larger than life look. And she talks about her process and the art of how you have to pivot during the making of these films. At first, when I when I started this series, like I was kind of taken back. I was like, oh, this is feels more like a featurette than what I wanted. This doesn't feel like you know, I was hoping for a more in-depth thing like, uh, you know, like the Pixar story or the Imagineering story or Into the Unknown. Uh, the, these episodes are very short and it feels all very calculated. It doesn't feel like we ever are seeing real moments, but we're hearing stories about these people told by them. And it's cut to the cinematic B-roll of them, you know, possibly reenact reenacting moments of meetings and, you know, the process. Um, even the choices for the two subjects in the, the first two episodes seems positioned to present Pixar as a more diverse company than it probably is, especially coming off the controversy of, you know, the Lassiter exit. Um, but that said, it's really good. So and it's really good in these bite-sized pieces. So I'm, I'm conflicted in, in that, like, I don't think it's entirely presenting the reality of what it's like to be in Pixar, but at the same time, it, it is presenting, you know, these bits and pieces of like the, the struggle of, you know, all these people that have to work together to create these films. Uh, so I would recommend it. And that is inside Pixar. And that comes out this Friday on Disney plus. Um, I also watched the first episode of gangs of London and this is something I don't think I've heard anybody talking about. This is a show. It's from Gareth Evans, the guy that created the the raid. Um, it's a modern gangster story told about like in, in London, there's this power vacuum created when the head of London's most powerful crime family is assassinated. And what, what happens there? Uh, it's bloody. It's brutal. It's violent. It's fun. It's, it has these over the top set pieces as you could only expect from the guy that, you know, did the raid. Uh, it feels like a Scorsese film directed by Evans, if that makes any sense. The opening episode was 90 minutes, which felt a little long. I've only seen the the first episode. I think the reason why a lot of people aren't talking about this, it seems like it's uh, from my my quick glance. It seems like it's getting really great reviews. Uh, and it's, it's highly rated in IMDb and stuff. But the thing is, I think in America, it's only available on AMC plus, which is like a premium service, which you have to subscribe to. I did a, like a free trial or something. So I watched the first episode that way. But, uh, if, 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 if you have a way of seeing gangs of London, if you want to subscribe to AMC plus, or maybe you're an international listener who has access to it another way. Um, you know, check it out. I, I would recommend it. I've only seen one episode, so I can't speak for where it goes from there, but I enjoyed it. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been rewatching all the Resident Evil movies, the uh, uh, Mila Jovovich starring ones uh, that are they're typically written by, often directed by her husband, Paul W.S. Anderson, and they're absolute trash, and I really enjoy them. And this is partially spurred on by the news that they're making a new Resident Evil movie, a reboot with a new director and a new cast and characters and plot that actually resemble the video games. <laughs> and it's so strange to me that the Resident Evil films, these, these original ones, which were made when the series of games were at the height of their initial popularity, 
there's none of the games in the movies. It is an utterly bizarre case of them taking a name and occasionally some character names and nothing else. Uh, so I was excited by the news of a new movie sticking true to the horror roots of the actual games. But I still have a soft spot for these movies. They're incredibly stupid. And they end up being essentially uh, a post-apocalyptic fashion show for Jovovich, who's just wearing all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, Mad Max chic outfits. <laughs> she shoots monsters in the face, and they're they're by no means good movies, but they're movies I enjoy a great deal to the point where I I've been spending like two ninety nine to rent them on Amazon, <laughs> one at a time, watching them with my wife, who is enjoying the Joe of its fashion as much as she is enjoying you know all the splattery creature effects. And in, in a weird way, it's kind of romantic that Paul Dave Sanderson built a movie franchise for his wife and just spends every single shot of the movie like trying to make her look as best as possible. So in a weird way, the Resident Evil movies are are wildly romantic. <laughs> um, I don't think they're streaming anywhere right now, but you can, you can rent them you know, from wherever you choose to rent them. They're a couple bucks each, but a big 4K Blu-ray set also came out. Uh, Chris, I know we talked about this offline on Slack. Did you ever get that 4K set of Resident Evil movies? They pushed it back, so it's not actually out yet, but it's oh, coming okay. soon. It's coming, okay. I think, later this month, so I haven't got it yet. Okay, I'm going to be. It's, it's embarrassing how much I want to own that 4K Blu-ray set of all the Resident Evil movies. Uh, I do think the, the odd-numbered ones are better than the even-numbered ones. Uh, Chris, as my fellow Resident Evil expert, uh, at least in movies, do you concur? <laughs> I, I mean, better is like a relative to. I mean, yes, yes, you're right, Jacob. <laughs> One, three, and five are the good ones, and two, four, and six are the bad ones. Uh, if you can hear the quotation marks on good and bad, I did my yeah. job. Anyway, I also started rewatching The Crown, whose new season arrives, I think, this week. And this show is terrific. I, I think that a lot of people have the impression that's a stuffy period drama. And I don't think the marketing does it any favors in that way. But I was telling Brad and HT this on our Slack that the audience for The Crown is less about people who like costume dramas, more people who like Mad Men. These stories of personal dynamics in a workplace uh, that are often very tragic, often very funny, often very sinister, often very strange. And the Mad Men comparison that uh, has been made by, I know Chris made in his reviews of the seasons, and that's what I concur with, is that each episode stands alone, feels like its own short story, beginning, middle, and end. Which makes it easier to binge, because you feel like you're satisfied after episode of The Crown, you're ready for another one. Uh, and I wish more Netflix shows did this. And uh, the new season coming up is the uh, last with the second cast or the first cast changeover because they have the passage of time uh, reflected by new cast members every two seasons. And I mostly like this. I, I Sometimes I'll still miss Claire Foy from the first two seasons, but Olivia Coleman is terrific uh, in season three. And I'm looking forward to season four, even though I know our review on the site uh, suggests that it's a dark period for the show because in history, it involves a lot of characters who've grown to like, whether you, whether you like this, you like them or not becoming total monsters and jackasses. Uh, Chris, you didn't put this down the dock, but you did review season four. Do you want to say a thing or two about it? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, season four, uh, it's great as usual. I, I, I agree with everything you said. It really is like, like even though I don't think it's as good as Man Man, it's really like the spiritual successor of Man Man in that it's like a you know period drama in the, like the 60s and, and, and onward, and it, it stands alone. And, and one really interesting comparison to Man Man now is season four, uh, it makes pretty much all the characters really unlikable, which is also something that Mad Men did because Mad Men, as great as that show was, a lot of the characters on that show, almost all the characters really were really just 
shitty people. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, not being uh, British, I don't really have much thoughts on the monarchy in general. You know, I, I, I go one way or the, you know, I, I don't like love or hate them. I just, you know, I'm aware of them. So my, my basis of the monarchy is really around this show and stuff I've read. And, you know, the first three seasons, while the characters have been flawed, they have been sympathetic or likable to a degree. And season four is the season where um, Princess Diana enters, enters the fray. And this season really makes you hate all the characters except Princess Diana, because, you know, the, the season, this season points out how poorly they treated her, how basically her, her marriage to Prince Charles was incredibly loveless. And, uh, she developed like an eating disorder about it and you know the entire family because you know they're it's all about the royal bloodline they just side with prince charles and they shut her out and they just treat her like garbage and it and she was just really young at the time like she was like 20 years old when she married prince charles and she seems like just a lot younger in in the season and it just it really makes you loathe like all of them just for how shitty they treat her and I just thought that was a really interesting twist to like have three seasons of a show be like grow to like these characters. And then season four is like, by the way, they're awful. So I really am <laughs> curious to see how more people react to that. You know, I, I'm sure British viewers, viewers in the UK will have a much different opinion of that because, you know, they, they live with the monarchy their whole lives. But I, I am curious how American audiences will react to, you know, the show that spent three years, three seasons building these characters up and then, season four completely tears them down. So it's, 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 it's very interesting. Chris, I have one piece of uh, inside baseball questioning for people, only for people who've watched the crown will appreciate this question, but I know season four re- reportedly brings back some cameos from, you know, earlier actors for flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So I need to know, do we get Tommy Lassell's back? Cause I miss Tommy Lassell's so fiercely. He's my favorite jackass on all of the crown. I don't think so. I cause I, for some reason they gave me screeners of this like months ago, even though it, it comes out this month, they gave it me a long. So I, I watched it a while ago. So I don't remember that, but uh, there, there are definitely uh, returns of some people that you love from previous seasons. <laughs> yeah. Side note on the same day I was rewatching the crown and remembering how much I loved Tommy Lassell's, but Pip Torrens, I realized he was a voice actor and motion capture actor in a video game I was playing. And then I remembered he's also in Star Wars The Force Awakens. He's in Doctor Who. He was the lead villain on Preacher. And I'm pretty sure Pip Torn's maybe one of the best actors of all time. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's that's my uh, thought for right now. Um, after The Crown, I, I want to linger for a moment on Jeopardy, uh, which a show I've talked about many times on this podcast. And Alex Trebek, the longtime host, passed away uh, just a few days ago. And I, w- I was admiring the show's quarantine, not quarantine, it's pandemic run because they redesigned the set. So the podiums were separated and they don't have a live studio audience uh, and they pipe in, you know, fake audio, fake applause for, the, for everybody. And Trebek didn't miss a beat. I mean, the stories, The Ringer has a really good article about behind the scenes of how the Jeopardy prepared for the pandemic and the social distancing measures and how they filmed safely. And it was really incredible. And one of the telling things was Trebek, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last year was eager to get back to work. He wanted to work. He was one spearheading getting back to work. And I just remember so many stories of people in my life and my people in the lives of people I love who were the were elderly folks. Once they lost their purpose, you know, once they felt they didn't have a job or a reason to live, they 
changed and they passed away. And it was clear that in, in his final months of life, Trebek was still dedicated to the show, dedicated to bringing it to people, dedicated to his work, his lifelong, you know, uh, career of being a figurehead, like elder statesman of old school television. And in a TV landscape where so many shows like this are hosted by B or C list celebrities who are trying to, you know, pay for a second house or trying to inject themselves into the proceedings and make it about them. Trebek always took one step back. He was the, an authority figure on a, on a trivia show who was often very funny, often very charming, but always focused on making sure that he was never bigger than the show, never bigger than the contestants. He was there to bring dignity to a trivia game show. And that seems so silly, but the fact that he maintained that dignity from my childhood, where I used to watch with my grandparents all the way up until now, where I watch it every day as an adult, and I still watch it every day. I won't keep on watching it you know, after they find a new host, uh, after his episodes run out in December. Uh, there's something to be said about a pop culture figure who has no baggage, who is only remembered for being the face of a show that nobody hates, everybody likes, and brought so much like level-headed joy uh, into so many living rooms. So uh, rest in peace, Alex Trebek. You are one of the most important TV icons in my life, and I'm going to miss you. Anybody have, else here have anything to say about Alex Trebek? I mean, how is anybody going to follow that? That was extraordinarily well said, <laughs> Jacob. Yeah, yeah, I think Jacob said it best. He is such a an enduring figure of all our childhoods, I think, and I he will be missed. Yeah, for sure. Okay, to follow that up, Chris, talk about what you've been watching. Uh, I watched um, Freaky, which comes out in theaters, assuming theaters are open somewhere this Friday. And it also comes on VOD in December, which for some reason they're not advertising, although it, I know it's to be true. Anyway, this is um, my review went up today. This is great. It's from the director of um, the Happy Death Day movies. And it's sort of that same... Uh, you know, it's a horror comedy like those movies. And um, uh, it's also a, a body swap film. Um, Vince Vaughn plays this, this serial killer. And then Catherine Newton is this this high schooler. And Vince Vaughn, um, uh, he steals this um, Aztec dagger that uh, is, of course, cursed and has magical powers. And when he stabs her with it, it causes them to, to swap bodies. So... Uh, now she's in Vince Vaughn's body and Vince Vaughn is in her body and um, hilarity ensues. And it's so good. It's it's funny. And it's it's really like like um, old score, old school, gory. Like I haven't seen like gore like this in, in a, like a mainstream horror film in, in a while because it's all like practical gore. It's not like CGI blood everywhere. And it's also like surprisingly sweet, which is also um was something that happened in the happy happy death day movies especially the second one so i i kind of think uh christopher landon is the filmmaker's name i think he has like the market cornered on these like these horror comedies that end up being surprisingly emotionally touching um uh but yeah i i had a lot of fun watching this um vince vaughn in particular is, is really fucking good in this just you know playing you know a teen a teenage girl trapped in the body of this very tall older man it's just and like he he does such a great job just with those mannerisms and um and what i really liked about it is like even though it's like a funny movie it's a, you know it's a comedy it's a horror comedy it takes itself seriously enough like there you know there's this whole subplot about 
um, you know, the teen girl character has, the, has a crush on this guy in her school and she doesn't think, you know, he notices her, but he does. And then, you know, later when she's in Vince Vaughn's body, she like confesses her feelings for him. And like on the surface, that could be played for laughs. You know, Vince Vaughn, this big hulking guy confessing he loves this high school kid, but it it plays it like really um, like sincerely. And I, I, I found that like kind of like, refreshing that it it wasn't like going for like cheap laughs it was going for you know uh, pathos and emotion and i just i really appreciate movies that give a shit i guess is what i'm trying to say there are so many like you know i love horror horror is my favorite genre but there are so many like cynical shitty horror movies where you know they're just going for cheap scares and cheap gags and this movie isn't isn't going for any of that it's taking itself as seriously as you can take, you know, a body swap movie. So, uh, freaky. It's, it's, it's a delightful film. It's one of my like favorite films of the year, honestly. So if, I don't know if you want to risk going to theaters to see it this Friday, maybe a drive-in if, if you can, <laughs> if not look for it on VOD in December. Wow. I'm surprised that it's one of your favorite movies of the year. It's so good. I mean, it's not like, I don't know if it's like top 10 material, but it, it's like top 20, I guess it, it's just so much. Fun. I actually watched it twice. I watched it on, <laughs> election night and you know to distract me from uh what was looking like trump was going to win and i was just like oh my god i'm horrified i need to be distracted <laughs> and but you know I, since i was also just a little distracted watching it on election night, i rewatched it before i wrote my review and I, I liked it like even more the second time so i really can't recommend this enough i know i know there's like you know uh, not a lot of new movies right now so you know if you're looking for a new movie seek this out because it, it's really worth your time and i know you had the crown season four in here did you want to say anything more the, about that no no i i, I think I, I touched on everything i wanted to touch on um uh like i said it's 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 a good season i am gonna miss this this cast although i, I you know i really grew attached to the first the first round of of actors as well so i am interested to see how you know how they they change things up in the, in the next two seasons but uh yeah the crown. Oh, yeah. I guess the other thing I'll say is Jillian Anderson is in this season and she plays uh, Margaret Thatcher and she's like unrecognizable. It's like shocking how much she doesn't look like Jillian Anderson. Like, you know, not only does she have that, like, you know, the big Margaret Thatcher hair, but she, she, she like just the way she moves, she moves in this really like hunched elderly way, I guess you would call it. Uh, and it just, she seems like she's like twice as old as she really is. And it was like, really shocking just because, you know, I kind of like, you know, grew up with Shane Anderson on the X-Files and to see her play like this completely different person. It was, it was, it's a little jarring, but she's really good in the role. And I know I, I saw a few people before the show came out, were worried the show was going to try and like humanize Margaret Thatcher, who you know, in, in history, she's, you know, kind of a monster and she, <laughs> she's just a piece of shit. Basically. Um, you don't have to really worry about that. You know, the, it does give her sort of like, you know, some sort of humanization, which is fair because, you know, for all her flaws, she was human, but it's not like, ah, Margaret Thatcher girl power. It's more like, Oh, she really was just an asshole. But so don't worry about that. If you're worried about them uh, sugarcoating Margaret Thatcher. And that's pretty much all I have to say at this point. Okay. Let's move on to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching? Not a whole lot recently, but I did um, finally decide to uh, catch up on a show that premiered a little while ago. And I just let a few episodes build up on my DVR so I could check it out. 
and that is uh, the update of Supermarket Sweep. Uh, I know Jacob has talked about the uh, original on here before, and he wrote about it, I think, for Quarantine Stream. Um, and I, I remember watching it when I was younger, and so I was interested in seeing this new one. It's uh, hosted by Leslie Jones, and it's just a modern update of the classic game show. And um, I, I forgot how much fun this show is, especially for somebody like me, because I, I constantly seek out new like snacks and drinks like that. So like, uh, it sounds weird to say, but like, I'm just super familiar with like things that are on grocery shelves. And this, you know, game show is based around like trivia about, you know, brands and products and stuff that you find on grocery grocery store shelves. So like they have a game where, uh, you're trying to guess what the logo of a product is as the, it, it appears like piece by piece, or they have like a, a rhyme, uh, riddle where you have to fit in the brand name there and just random trivia questions about all this sort of stuff. And then of course there's the, like the physical challenge aspect of it where they're running around the grocery store and trying to grab, uh, certain products and, uh, get the most amount of, uh, groceries so they have the most expensive haul. And it's just, uh, you know, kind of just a, a mindless fun way to, to pass the time. I, I feel like, uh, this year, especially I've been leaning into more old man tendencies by watching, game shows because I, I in addition to this like i've been watching the the new newer edition of who wants to be a millionaire hosted by jimmy kimmel because they've been doing they brought back like a celebrity edition earlier this year and then now they're flip-flopping back and forth between uh celebrities and like um healthcare workers and and like people who are, are working that like they want to pay respect to during the pandemic and that kind of thing and so the celebrities pay, play for charity and then the people play for real money obviously and it's uh it's fun. And, I, and then on top of that, I've been getting, I got back into Jeopardy recently, especially after hearing about Alex Trebek passing. So lots of game shows over here recently. And uh, yeah, they're, they're just a fun way to pass the time. Okay. Then uh, Ben, we talked about soul. What else have you been watching? Uh, I went out and got a 4k Blu-ray player finally. And uh, the reason was uh, I, I'm watching uh, Game of Thrones, the complete collection, which was released on a 4K Blu-ray earlier this month for the first time. Uh, when I was watching the show, I just watched it through my, you know, like cable subscription or whatever. And there's like compression and it looked like garbage. And even, uh, you know, after I got this box set, I fired up HBO Max and just did like a quick comparison back and forth. And it's like night and day, like the HBO Max version of game of thrones the streaming version just looks like trash compared to this 4 uh, uh, 4k blu-ray disc that i is the very first one that i've ever seen so maybe i'm getting some of that like you know uh new toy shine and, and just sort of like spielberg facing at my tv like wow this is you know what a world that we can live in uh <laughs> where where technology looks this good uh or can make a show look this good but man this thing just looks so so great and um it's you know every we can debate all day about like the quality of game of thrones and all that and we don't need to get into any of that but when the show was on i, I think everybody was so caught up in the storytelling and rightly so that not very much attention was paid to like the finer details of how you know hundreds if not thousands of people came together to envision and create these fictional countries from the ground up and i i know that it can sort of be tempting for people especially people who don't love fantasy to be like, Oh, all fantasy worlds are just like Lord of the Rings, but it's so much more complicated than that. And this, uh, Blu-ray set, um, which has like all of the bonus features in it, like over 15 hours of bonus features, um, really shows like the incredible amount of work that went into making this thing. There's one behind the scenes feature at where, um, 
Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding is like the the centerpiece of it. And it talks about, you know, every decision that went into creating that massive event within this world and how like the production designers were purposefully throwing together these crazy clashing disparate styles of celebratory materials because it was all supposed to be envisioned and put together by this bratty kid King who has no sense of culture or class and like doesn't understand that certain things, you know, complement each other and, and all of that. So I, I, I just love like, you know, now that the show is completely over being able to dive in and, and really put my focus on, um, you know, the stuff that, you didn't really pay that much attention to, or I didn't because I was so immersed in the narrative. So um, I know there was a big documentary called the long night that uh, covered the production of the final season. And that is actually on this uh, in this 4k set as well. Um, And that was like this really wonderful shout out to the people who work behind the scenes on the show, but having the full library of bonus features in this thing, um, it really like it rivals the, the extensive bonus features in the Lord of the Rings trilogies for me. So um, I, I think it's a big, a big recommendation for me. Um, even if you're, you know, one of those people who thinks that the show sort of fell apart at the very end, I think there's so much to love and so much to uh, learn and explore in the, um, in this 4k set. So uh, that is game of Thrones. It's available right now. Um on election night, I watched John Mulaney, The Comeback Kid. I had never seen this stand-up special, and I was, as Chris alluded to, I was looking for something to uh, distract me uh, in in a time when we all sort of knew that things were looking pretty bleak. Uh, and this special definitely did the trick. It's like an hour long, and um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to like go beat by beat through a stand-up special. That would be ludicrous. But there is one moment at the end that is <laughs> like an extended bit about the fugitive that uh, <laughs> it's like so, so funny. I was laughing out loud. Um, so uh, John Mulaney, The Comeback Kid is available on Netflix if you want to check that out. If you're looking for just like an hour of something that will take your mind off things and and put you in a good place. I think this will do it. Um, While you're at it, actually watch all of John Mulaney's specials on Netflix because every single one of them is great. Yeah, I've seen several of them. This one I, I somehow missed. I think it came out in what year? 2015 was when this one came out and I just missed it. And so I was just like looking to sort of cross it off my my list of uh, Mulaney stuff to watch on Netflix. And yeah, I, I also recommend all the other ones that I've seen there as well. Um uh, I also watched Plus One, which I know um, HT talked about when she saw it at what New York Film Festival. HT is that where you saw this, like a year or two uh, ago? It was um, or Tribeca, probably, Tribeca, right? yeah, yeah, Tribeca, like two years ago. Yeah, so Plus One is a romantic comedy. It's streaming on uh, Hulu right now, and it's basically about like these two friends in their early thirties who decide to uh, run the gauntlet of wedding season by, uh, being each other's date for every wedding that they have to go to. And then they slowly realize that their friendship you know, is blossoming into something more than that. Um, it's a pretty, uh, you know, formulaic movie. You can definitely predict every single beat that's going to happen in it pretty much. But I think, uh, the performances, especially of Maya Erskine, who is so, so wonderful on the Hulu show uh, Pen15, uh, sort of elevates this movie just a little bit. It's not like, I don't, I don't think it's going to end up on anybody's like, you know, top five list of romantic comedies or anything. But if you're looking for just like a solid, dependable, reliable um, romantic comedy that will give you like all of the feelings that you want to feel, you know, when you sign up for a movie experience like that, this movie does that. Um, Jack Quaid is the male lead. And I thought he was 
he just sort of pales in comparison to Maya Erskine, who is just like such a dynamic and interesting performer that like really almost anybody that she would have been paired up with would have had trouble keeping up with her, I think. But her energy is just, um, it's just off the charts and she's, she's so, so good. So uh, that movie is called Plus One. It is available on Hulu right now. Okay, guys. So on, uh, this was Friday night. So the, the election had not been called yet. And my wife and I were like looking at each other and trying to figure out, okay, what is a movie that we can watch that is going to completely take our minds off of all of this again? And we were just flipping through HBO Max, uh, just scrolling through the tiles and the Pelican Brief came up, which is this 1993 movie uh, directed by Alan J. Pakula and it stars Julia Roberts and uh, Denzel Washington. And neither of, neither of us had seen this and we're like, all right, yeah, let's just watch this movie. And I had no idea what it was about other than it was a legal thriller with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington in it. And almost immediately, it's a we discover that it's about two Supreme Court justices who are killed by an assassin. And it's all this like political um, you know, controversy and like uh, behind the scene, uh, behind the scenes machinations and, and scheming to get power of the Supreme court. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this is the movie we picked right now. Like this is supposed to be, you know, some sort of uh, escape from the real world stuff. But it was, um, there were so many moments in this thing where we looked at each other and we we're like, are you serious? Like, this is what this movie is. So I don't know how I had uh, missed out on like what the plot, the, even the basic plot of the Pelican brief was, but um yeah, it's a weird time to watch this movie for the first time. I'll just say that. Uh, I enjoyed it overall. I think, it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty solid little thriller. Um, Alan J. Pakula is a, a great director. He, he did All the President's Men and Clute and Parallax View and um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, you know, he's like one of the, the big American filmmakers of like the middle of the 1900s. Um, but uh, man, yeah, I, I just was, it was quite a shock to uh, to realize what the Pelican Brief was about. Has anybody here seen this movie or, or like even thought about it in, you know, the past 25 years or however long it's been since the movie came out? I read the book. I never saw the movie, but this reminds me of how last night during my Crown rewatch, I hit the episode where uh, some British folks try to stage a queue on, uh, in 1960s England. And I said, oh, bad time for this episode. So I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a strange one. So that's Pelican Brief. It's on HBO Max. And then finally, um, also on HBO Max is Bringing Up Baby, which is a screwball comedy, which I have really loved almost every one of these that I've seen. Uh, I had never seen Bringing Up Baby before. It stars Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. It's directed by Howard Hawks. Uh, it came out in 1938. And I was excited to see this. And um, I think I found my threshold for screwball comedies. And it is this movie. Like I could not handle this. I made it all the way through to the end, but this is so manic. And like everybody, I mean, I know the point of this is like the fast talking, you know, whole thing where like there's a romance and like people talk over each other in all time at all times. But Catherine Hepburn's character in this movie is like, motor mouth to a point where and, and like just so completely over the top where I felt um more anxious watching it than relaxed or you know actively enjoying what I was watching it kind of reminded me of that episode of, of uh, Atlanta where um paperboy tries to he, all he wants is to get a haircut but the the hairdresser keeps like taking him on all of these uh circuitous routes throughout the city and like forcing him to you know do all these different things that delay the only thing that Paperboy actually wants. And and Cary Grant's character reminded me of that. 
uh, in this movie. Like all he wants is to like get back and get married and and get back to his you know his his New York life. And Catherine Hepburn you know is like this whirling dervish who like blows into his life and just completely upends everything. And like on paper, I love that. And but <laughs> in practice, this movie was just it was too much for me. So uh, yeah, that's bringing up baby. It's available on HBO Max. Ben is wrong. You should all watch bringing up baby. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> I figured that okay. was going to be an unpopular opinion, which is why I saved it for last. No, you're not. Uh, I, I watched this for the first time in film school, a history of film class, but uh, we did a screwball comedy section, and I was the only person in the class who, who, who could stand it. Everybody else thought it was absolute nonsense and chaos, and I thought, yes, it's nonsense and chaos, but that's the point. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think the movie's great, but you're not alone, Ben. Okay, lastly, HT, what have you been watching? So I watched Wolfwalkers, which is the new film from Cartoon Saloon and is coming to Apple TV. Uh, I, I hear it has a good art of book. It has a good art of book. Um, anyways, this movie is stunning. It is probably one of my favorite movies of the year that I've seen so far. And it's I, I expected great things from Cartoon Saloon. I really loved um, The Secret of Kells. I really loved Song of the Sea. Um, but this movie absolutely blew me away, not just in its animation, but in how energetic and dazzling and affecting the story was. So it follows a young um, hunt, daughter of a hunter who is uh, who travels with her father to Ireland uh, to help as he's a hired to wipe out the last of a wolf pack that is terrorizing a village that is um, chopping down the wo- the woods where they're living, and she encounters a wild uh, wolf girl named Maeve, and um, ends up being uh, introduced to this w- wonderful magical world in which she lives, and um, the world of the wolf walkers who have the ability to uh, talk to and control the wolves as well, and. I was actually surprised that this movie was a um, animal transformation movie, which usually I really dislike. I that was one of the elements of Brave that I could not really get into. I feel like it it tanked a lot of movies, like Princess and the Frog, for example. But this, the way that Wolf Walkers um, introduces that element, feels really thematically coherent with its. Um, sort of homage and love letters to the Irish folklore and mythology that this movie is sort of ta- uh, speaking toward and um, attempting to portray how it's kind of disappearing and um, being uh, and being um, forgotten. And it's just, a, it's really, really gorgeous movie and um, absolutely entrancing. And it's one that is probably the most commercially uh, accessible of the cartoon saloon movies. Um, their movies like Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea are generally more sort of art house films, like really beautiful to look at, but a lot more slow burning. And this is not in the least. There is an antagonist. There is several action like climaxes and a tension that just ramps up the entire time. And uh, it's it reminded me a lot of that... Um, of Studio Ghibli films and how they're able to balance that those more mature, often environmentally uh, forward tones with a an action adventure story, 
And this one, although I think I think Wolf Walkers is even more over the top in terms of how it tackles that action. And um, it's just completely like trans- transporting and engrossing movie. And I I love it. It's just um it's it's great. And I, I highly recommend it, even if you aren't a fan of animated films, if you're not if you haven't seen any cartoon saloon films, this is a really great in because it is the more accessible one and one that is just completely enjoyable on I think every aspect so that's Wolf Walkers which is uh, hitting theaters this week November 13th and it's going to be on Apple TV plus on December 11th uh, okay what else have you been watching so I watched His Dark Material Season 2. Um, that is debuting on HBO and HBO Max next week. But I wrote a review for it, which is up on the site. And I enjoyed Season 1, but I found it a little tonally uneven because of how they were attempting to really push that sort of child adventure structure into a more ambitious adult sort of peg little hole so i think that that season two is a big step up from that especially in its tackling of, of darker materials <laughs> um, because this is actually the part where the plot kicks in and you realize that this is a an inversion of paradise lost and um that sort of the the the, the larger um, divine plot of it all uh, becomes more clear. And um, this, I don't want to get too much into the plot of it because there's a lot of spoilers, but it's for sure a much more mature uh, series that finally sort of hits its stride and gets a grasp on the tone that it was struggling with in the first season and is much more enjoyable to watch. And I think that the cast also is more comfortable in their roles too. Daphne Keene is in the lead as uh, Lyra and Amir Wilson, who was introduced in season one, but takes on more of a spotlight in this season is really good too. He's got that sort of, um, he plays the sort of typical tortured hero that you see in a lot of YA fantasy stories, but he has that sort of um, big screen charm to him that I feel like he, if he, he might be, he could be successful like on the big screen if he so chooses, but he's great in this. And uh, Ruth Wilson is always the MVP. She's amazing in this show and I could not rave about her more. (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda is, is an interesting performance because he plays a character who's very like roguish and um everything Lin-Manuel Miranda does just feels like has like this layer of cheese smothered on top of it so it feels like sometimes even if he's not being intentionally funny he is a little bit funny and kind of cheesy but I think it adds it adds a fun aspect swashbuckling aspect to the character and uh and keep some of that humor that I think that season one was lacking too. Um, there's a little bit more of humor in it too. So that's that's why I think season two in general is just a, a big step up from season one. So that's His Dark Materials, um, which pre- recently premiered on BBC and will be debuting in the States next week. Okay. What else have you been watching? All right. So everyone has been turning to comfort viewing uh, this past week to distract themselves from the election. And my... Uh, comfort viewing for this past week was Young Justice Outsiders, which finally hit HBO Max. And I was really excited to watch this season, actually, um, because I was a big fan of Young Justice when it debuted on Cartoon Network, I think like a decade ago, back in 2010. And I was just like 
heartbroken when the series was taken was canceled after season two and uh, because of because it was it kind of hit that strange spot in terms of demographic where it appealed more to older viewers like me like I was in college at the time that came out and I was and everyone who was enjoying it was much more in that sort of college teenage uh, demographic but because the show wasn't selling enough toys and it wasn't appealing to young boys enough, it got canceled. And I was so upset about it. Um, and I was so happy to see it returned almost 10 years later with a third season, uh, Young Justice Outsiders. It originally debuted on DC Universe and is finally now on HBO Max. Uh, so heads up to everyone who had been wanting to check it out and did not know it was on HBO Max yet. And this show is so great. It's, it's, even, um, it's gotten even better uh, since it was off the air. I think that having being being absent so long they were able to hone and um create a, sh- a series that's like so well developed with so many of my like favorite characters like this is a great season and great show for fans of the bat family especially fan- for fans of dick grayson like me like i am a very <laughs> big i'm a very big dick grayson nightwing fan and this show <laughs> is very much catered towards me especially in jesse mccartney's performance as dick grayson which sounds like a strange thing but he's a very talented voice actor and i first fell in love with his voice acting way back when i played kingdom hearts 2 and he played roxas who's my favorite character in those games too and he broke my heart and i will love him forever (laughs) (laughs) and he's done the same with dick grayson in young justice he has he has like a shown a real talent for voice acting and um there's a there's like a nice little nod to the early seasons in this season in Young Justice Outsiders that really displays his talent for playing both younger and older and um, everything in between for the characters. But I'm, okay, I've been raving about Jesse McCartney a lot, which I realize I've been doing. <laughs> but Young Justice Outsiders is great. It um, uh, it the, the Young Justice is basically, if you don't know, is set in sort of this alternate, um like universe like so that the the creators of the show can basically play with the characters and create a whole new canon as they want and it follows a group of the Justice League sidekicks who form their own covert ops group uh, called Young Justice uh, in later seasons they just call it the team to be even you know cooler and more hip um <laughs> but it's, it's it takes place and they they essentially um go on these covert missions and discover this wide-reaching uh, conspiracy by this t- this group of villains called the Light who are attempting to um, take down and discredit the Justice League uh, through um, nefarious means. And um, there is, they manage to just kind of up the stakes and widen the scale even more in Young Justice Outsiders uh, in a way that's intergalactic and cosmic and um, is really enjoyable to see as well as bring in all those small character moments and really fun character moments for fans. Because I feel like in a lot of ways, Young Justice Outsiders is kind of fan service. It play it introduces a lot of fan favorite characters and um, but gives them interactions and, and dynamics that both feel in character but new because it's not within that DC canon. So it's um it's a really, really great show. And um Young Justice Outsiders this season got even experimental in some points. There's um 
one episode that takes place entirely within like a hallucination in Beast Boy's mind that has like fun digs at Teen Titans Go and Doom Patrol. And uh, it's just, it's really fun to watch and uh, served as a great distraction for me during election week. I managed to binge through the entire season, which I think is like 26 episodes um, within that week. And uh, it's great. I can't wait for season four, which is supposed to be coming to HBO Max too. So I, I love Young Justice Outsiders. I love Dick Grayson. <laughs> And I love the Bat Family, great Bat Family episode, a great Bat Family like series. So, if you aren't into any of those things, and if you want a good DC um, themed series, Young Justice and Young Justice Outsiders is on HBO Max. This shows how out of the loop I am. I didn't even know that Young Justice existed. Never mind, there was a big you know hiatus, and then they came back with Young Justice Outsiders to appease the the hardcore fans. I don't know anything, HT is what I'm saying. Well, you should watch it then, Peter. Yeah, I guess I have HBO Max, so I guess I guess when it was on DC Universe, I had the excuse. And in, in, in the excuse that I didn't even know it existed <laughs> to not watch it. But now I have no excuse, especially with the pandemic that's keeping me in the house and with nothing to watch. So, yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Fred, what have you been eating this week? Uh, some nice holiday-themed treats that I have found. Um, so, uh, I don't know if you guys have Aldi where you are. I'm pretty sure they're nationwide, right? Everyone has an Aldi near them somewhere, I think, right? Uh, I've never heard of it. Okay. Yeah, none down here in Texas. Oh, interesting. Okay, so, so at least here in, in the Midwest, there's this grocery chain called Aldi, and, um, they're, they're basically like a, a cheaper option. Lots of generic, uh, brands and that kind of thing, but they do carry, you know, some brand name stuff. And so, um, in recent years, they've gotten, like just more unique and cool things, I guess, that you normally don't find at other grocery stores. And especially around the holidays, the stuff that they get as far as candy and whatnot, they get a lot of interesting things that they import from Europe. Because uh, I actually believe that Aldi is um, pretty big in, in Europe too. Uh, and so they um, just put out all of their holiday stuff. And one of the things that I saw that I thought looked really good were these cocoa-dusted Belgian chocolate truffles. Um, and these are so freaking good. Like the, 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 um, the chocolate in them is just, it's, it's just rich enough and it's delicious. And the cocoa powder that's like just barely dusted on the outside of them, um, just adds a, a nice touch to it. And I was really impressed by these cause I, I really love, um, the lint, uh, chocolate truffles are probably like among my favorite candies. Um, and I, I, I tend to get them more on the holidays than any other time around the year, especially the, the, um, mint cookie crumble ones. Uh, but these are really, really good. And so I'll be keeping an eye out to see if I can find more of them. I, I actually, I had gotten a box to try and then I had went back to Aldi to get milk recently and all the rest of the boxes that they had were already gone. So they must be pretty popular. Um, so I'm going to have to keep an eye out at other Aldis to see if they have them. So if you have an Aldi near you, I recommend looking in the holiday candy section to try these because they're really good. But apologies to Aldi. I, I just looked it up. They are in Texas. I've just never been to one, and they're taking notice of them, so I made an assumption. I'm sorry. Well, well, well. <laughs> um, and then it seems like sugar cookie is the flavor this year that all the candy companies are pushing for a new holiday flavor. Because uh, I, I talked about the new sugar cookie Hershey Kisses not too long ago, and those were delicious. Um, but Ghirardelli also has their own sugar cookie uh, white chocolate release. Um, they're, they're usual chocolate squares, um, but they're sugar cookie flavored with white chocolate, and they have the same kind of um, cookie bits inside them. Um, and these actually, I think, are they taste even better than the Hershey's Kisses. 
Um, but it's still it's still that similar funfetti frosting kind of flavor. So if you if you like that, again, these are really good. But the quality of the chocolate, because it's Ghirardelli, is better than the Hershey Kisses. Um, and so I found those at Target. I think that they're everywhere, but they, they also could potentially be a Target exclusive because sometimes that happens. Yeah. I also want to apologize to Aldi. They are in California, and there's one in Burbank. So I, I just never heard of it. Before. There you go. Um, and then so there's also a sugar cookie M&M's, uh, which I finally got my hands on. Uh, and unlike the Ghirardelli and Hershey Kiss options, uh, these don't taste like Funfetti Frosting. They, they have more of a, a genuine sugar cookie flavor, and it's because the inside of them, they've made them um, similar to the crispy M&M's, where they have a little bit of a crunch inside and not just uh, chocolate. And so the, um, they taste more like a standard like sugar cookie, usually the kind that has like the little um, sugar crystals uh, on them around the holidays. And so those are pretty good. And then I uh, back at Aldi their So their main like brand th- that they have of stuff is Clancy's. And they make a bunch of like the generic versions of Cheetos and Doritos and all that kind of thing. But they also have uh, random interesting flavors that they try out from time to time. And one of the ones that I saw this year was for Thanksgiving. They have a turkey and stuffing flavored potato chip. Ooh. Yeah, and it's it's really, really good. It essentially tastes like they took the seasoning from like a box of stovetop stuffing, but just put it on potato chips. Um, and they are they're very, very good. I um one of the things that I, I like to do with um deli sandwiches, usually if I have like a bologna sandwich or a turkey sandwich, is I'll put so sometimes I'll, I'll put regular potato chips on them. Um, and I decided to do that with uh, a turkey sandwich that I had the other day. And that was a game changer. Like whenever I have a turkey sandwich, if these chips are out, I'm going to put these on there instead of regular potato chips because it was, it was awesome. Wait, do they taste more turkey or more stuffing or just both? more, more stuffing for sure. The, the, the flavor is recognizable, uh, definitely as, as more stuffing. See, I, I like the favorite thing for me every thanksgiving is stuffing like stuffing is my favorite so i i I thought let's take this opportunity go down the line starting with brad what is your favorite thanksgiving food i mean i i love the turkey with gravy but the 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 stuff the homemade stuffing that goes um inside of it is definitely a close second jacob what about you uh i like a bite that contains a little bit of stuffy a little bit of mashed potatoes a little bit of gravy uh any combination of that will make me happy yeah, I'm like the day after guy that like likes building the sandwiches with like the Hawaiian rolls and you put some stuffing in there and some some turkey. Uh, ben, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I want to say turkey, but the thing that's really just dominating my uh, psyche right now is pumpkin pie dip, which I may have talked about on a previous you know Thanksgiving themed episode <laughs> of this podcast in recent years. But uh, it's basically just like a can of uh, pumpkin pie spice and like um uh whipped cream and it's just like super light and fluffy and you just dip a a graham cracker in there and it just tastes like you're eating pumpkin pie it's incredible this this sounds awesome and i need this recipe yeah i'll see if i can find it i'll I'll, uh maybe i I can get my uh wife to send it to me and then maybe i can like put it in the show notes or something so i can spread the love to everybody because it's a very special thing in my house like we only have it around thanksgiving so we're like ticking down toward that time and i'm (laughs) i'm like trying to to uh convince her to all right let's just have it now and she's like no we make it the week of thanksgiving what are you doing tradition like let's go come on yeah, what one friend's giving uh, Ben was over the house and he brought that and it was amazing. So, uh, so I can vouch. Uh, HT, what about you? 
sorry, what? Um, what, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food? Oh, I like stuffing. Stuffing? Yeah. Chris? Yeah, I'm, I'm very much pro stuffing. I mean, that's pretty much, I don't eat meat, so I, I can't eat turkey anymore. So stuffing is, is. Have you tried any like the veggie versions of turkey? I have, and they're all terrible. So uh, you know, for like for a few years, I kept trying to find like the right fake turkey, and eventually, I was like, you know what? Fuck it! I'm just going to eat the side dishes since they're like that's part of Thanksgiving. I, w- anyway, so. I wonder if they've gotten better in recent years, especially with like all the restaurants and now doing like the you know impossible burgers or Beyond Meat and all that yeah. stuff. I don't know. Like uh, the, the most recent, like last year, I didn't bother. So the the most recent was like the year before last, and I forgot what I I forget what I got, but it was just so bad. And I was like, I'm I'm done with this. I'm just going to stick with the the side dishes. And uh, did I get everybody? I think I did. Right? Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been playing, Jacob. What have you been playing? Uh, I'm learning a new RPG called Vasen. Uh, I think it's how you pronounce it. It is from the uh, Swedish publisher Free League. They are an increasingly big deal in the tabletop role-playing community. They publish a lot of very popular uh, games, including the uh, Alien RPG based in the film franchise. And my current group is planning to wrap up our Alien game in the next week. The finale, our final session, is on Sunday. And uh, side note, uh, this uh, 15-session game if it was an alien movie, it would effectively end the alien franchise forever because there's nowhere else to go. We burnt down the alien franchise in 15 <laughs> RPG sessions. Uh, but that's a story for another day. And the group wants to stay together. We just want to, we're just hungry for something else. And uh, uh, Vason uses uh, the Year Zero engine, which is the same engine that they use to uh, power alien games, like the same skeleton of basic rules. Uh, but unlike Alien, this is a game set in. 19th century Scandinavia, you know, meaning Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark, and you are all monster hunters in, you know, uh, in this region, in this time period. So it's a lot of, you know, um, uh, really period-specific details. And you can tell it's a passion project for, you know, the, the Swedish writers and designers of the game who are able to lean very heavily on the onto their culture, on, the, you know, where they're from. And it's a beautifully bound book. The paper is, is thick and the art is incredible. And it should be easy to learn for my group because it really is the same engine as the Alien game, but, you know, stripped down a little bit, made more accessible. The theme is more mystery-driven. It's not a game built around shooting monsters in the face. It's a game about trying to figure out what kind of monster is causing a problem in this town. What is its weakness? What do we learn about it? Is it evil uh, or is it well-meaning but causing problems? And the game has all these chapters about how to run a mystery, how to build a mystery, and the rules are, but combat and fighting things are, are very similar to the Alien game, so I can I can run that in my sleep at this point. Uh, but I'm very excited to have a game where trying to shoot first is the uh, worst possible choice, and I'm very very excited to give that a shot. So if you're looking for a new RPG that is, you know, medium weight, it's not like super easy uh, to, to learn and run, but it's also uh, very accessible. It has a very cool theme. It's just like a gorgeous object. It, I like holding it. I like looking at it uh, as a vase in uh, V A. E S E N uh, from Free League. It's really really cool. Uh, I I do have a question for you, Jacob. Yeah. So you've done these fifteen sessions. It's all come down to this one session. You mm-hmm. all know that this is the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, is there any chance that like you guys lose, or is it like 
most movies where you know the good guys are going to win. It's just how they're going to win. It is the game master's prerogative if they want to, you know, sort of tilt things in the favor of the players, give them a satisfying ending. It's a concept called rule zero where the game master is always right and they're allowed to, you know, fudge things if it makes everybody have a good time. And my players don't listen to this show. Uh, and I have a basic idea of where this is going. I'll give you a, a, the briefest sketch of, of our alien <laughs> session. We find that the second to last session ended with the three survivors. They, I gave them an entire squadron of 12 Marines uh, to go into this final raid with. They're all NPCs so they can order around. They're all dead. They're all very, very dead. And they're heading into a, um, a nuclear reactor uh, that's melting down and full of aliens and only two of them have radi- have radiation suits. They're almost out of bullets. Uh, they're and they're all on the verge of death. So they could all die. I'm not going to force a happy ending if they, if they do dumb shit. Um, and I'm prepared to roll with an ending where where everything goes badly. It's a sad ending. Or I'm prepared to roll with an ending where they all make it out alive or something in between. It really the drama of it really does come down to the dice rolls and their decisions. And you know, and if I feel like if I'm if I read the room and realize that this will be a more satisfying ending if I let them get away with that. You know, I will let that happen. Uh, but at this point in the game, you know, uh, all bets are off. I'm ready to see what happens as much as they are. That's so scary because like with a movie or even a TV series, you invest yourself in like many years of a TV show, but you, you assume the end is going to like have a positive or like at least a conclusive ending that is satisfying in some way. But here, it could be, like, just everybody dies. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's my responsibility as Game Master to ensure that everybody has a good time. I mean, that's the thing about running a game. It's the thing that I think a lot of uh, people get wrong when they first try to run a game, or it's, it's what pop culture gets wrong, is that a Game Master or a Dungeon Master or, or a Keeper or whatever phrase you want to use based on the game, they are not antagonistic toward the players. It's not their job to kill the players or make their lives hard. It's their job to put the players in a difficult, intense, fun situation and provide feedback and exciting things when the players make their choices. Um, like, for example, there was a, um event in the last session where an alien broke through the roof of an elevator where, like, where one one player was there with four NPCs, non-playable characters who are, you know, who I control. And I told the players, you can use the command action, which is an action in the game, to tell the soldiers what you want them to do. And based on your command rolls, how well you roll and how well you command them, they can do what you want them to do. And he commanded that um, in close quarters have all of his soldiers fire at the alien, forgetting that they um, all had flamethrowers. So <laughs> it ended up being a disastrous moment where the entire elevator was engulfed in flames. I made the player roll for an injury, and he could have died right then and there. But I, I fudged it just slightly um, so that so he was guaranteed to either be mildly injured or badly injured, but I was not going to let him die there. Uh, he does not know that. He, he will not know that unless he listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> because I realized it would be it would be more interesting if he can, for the players if he continued on injured as opposed to dying right there and having to create a new character on the second to last session. So that was a, a choice I made in the moment, one I stand by. And his character ended up getting really messed up eyes. He got a bunch of blood and ash in his eyes and had to be escorted to a lab where they had to uh, use an eye wash station to keep him moving. So it ended up being like a really a natural moment of progression where the rules and my choices as game master had to come together to make sure it was dramatically satisfying. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's slash on daily. You can find more of all of our work at slash You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send to your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us 
at peter.slashfilm.com. And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on there. And please, if you can, uh, Jacob mentioned reading the comments, people complaining. I don't read the I don't I don't read the reviews, but it helps us quite a bit. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there that do like Patreons. They ask you for your money. Not that that's a bad thing. I, I contribute to Patreons. If you can, I, I'm going to ask you for like one minute of your time. Go to iTunes. Go to the podcast app. Go to Slash Film Daily and write us a positive review that, you know, not only do you give us the five stars, but, you know, write write us something sweet. You know, tell us who, who your favorite, you know, people in the podcast are. It's always HT and Crest. I don't know why. But it is. Uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but please do that. that. That helps us out quite a bit. It helps people find this podcast and it helps like more people know about this. So, yeah, please go do that. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you. We'll, we'll talk to you again on Friday with the Mandalorian podcast. Peter. Uh, on Friday. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be on Friday. Friday will not be a podcast where you get to hear from the Gantrian book of insult, defense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, repuffs, caustic quip, quips, and put downs by Mr. Louis A. Safian. Peter, I wrote the page 47 dressed and undressed. This is a section about fashion and the choices we make in fashion. Are, are you ready, Peter? Sure. Peter, the way your neckline keeps going down and your hemline keeps going up, the fellows are all <laughs> hanging around. They want to be there when both ends meet. Uh, uh, yeah. I feel like this is going to veer into some very so slightly sexist territory. Uh, Peter, the way your neckline... No, no, I, 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 that was good. It's good. Good job, Jacob. Uh, ben Pearson, he's a moron with less on. <laughs> I, I would have yeah. laughed even harder if he just said, he's a moron. <laughs> <laughs> well brad brad looks as if he was poured into his dress and forgot to say when oh that's absolutely true uh ht she wears atom bomb dresses a 50 percent fallout oh uh chris he's dressed like he's fleeing from a burning building oh <laughs> I was I was actively scrambling to find the ones that actually were at least sexist on this page. Folks. <laughs> Jacob doesn't doesn't do any work ahead of time for the segment. No, no, not at all. I, I open it up and here we go. I would let you know. It'd be hilarious is if like this book didn't exist and Jacob's just been writing these this whole time. <laughs> Brad, are you calling me a genius? <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you have more, Jacob, or is that it? <laughs> that was it. That was it. Do you, do you oh, want that was it. Oh, okay. I can, I can have no, it. No, 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 no. no, no. That's, 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 we're, we're good. It's time Jacob, for the wives section. No, the wives no, no, no. section. Okay, but everybody, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Peter, Bye. the food you're... Bye. No, no. <laughs> <laughs>